Hey all, Jesse here. We're getting near the end of the year. I wanted to thank you for listening to Bullseye. Making our show isn't easy. We've got a very small staff that works tirelessly to book guests and edit interviews and keep things running smoothly. It is hard work that takes time, money, and effort. It's also incredibly rewarding. When I hear that a guest is an NPR listener already, it means a lot. And it means something to know that you're listening as well. So I'll get to the point. If you want to show your gratitude this holiday season, consider supporting the NPR member station in your area. Any amount. It's the single most effective way to keep shows like Bullseye going. It'll make a huge difference to public radio in your community. It makes a huge difference to us, too. To get started with your donation to an NPR member station, visit donate.npr.org bullseye. Or just text the word bullseye to the number 49648. We'll send you a text message with a link where you can find your local station and make your contribution. Message and data rates may apply. You can visit npr.org slash SMS terms for privacy and text message terms. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. So there's a show called Steven Universe. It's on Cartoon Network. You might have heard of it. It's a very special show. It's about a boy named Steven. He's about 11 years old when the show starts. He lives in a seaside town with his dad. Pretty early on, Steven realizes that there's something about him that's special. He's half human, half gem. Gems in the world of Steven Universe are these beings from another planet that have superpowers. And most of them want to destroy Earth, but three of them want to save it. So together, Stephen and the three gems fight to, well, to save the world. But the show is about more than a fight for Earth's future. It's about more than just Stephen, too. It explores the town he's growing up in. It profiles the guy who makes pizza. It follows a child who is an onion. Very special show. The whole thing is created by Rebecca Sugar. Rebecca is a veteran animator who also worked on the acclaimed Cartoon Network show Adventure Time. Her work on both shows have earned her six Emmy Awards. Anyway, there has been a lot happening in Steven Universe world. This past September saw the release of the Steven Universe movie and an accompanying soundtrack. Many of the songs were written and composed by Rebecca. Cartoon Network also just kicked off a special epilogue series for the show. It's called Steven Universe Future. It's airing now. And by the way, one note, Rebecca identifies as a non-binary woman, and she uses both she, her, and they, them pronouns. She's uh, very chill about it, whatever you prefer. Anyway, let's take a listen to a little bit from Steven Universe, the movie. In it, Steven has decided to follow a new gemstone friend named Spinnel to a far-off planet his late mother, Pink Diamond, enjoyed visiting. Spinnel used to be Pink Diamond's playmate, and in this clip, tells Steven an important part of Pink's backstory. This was our garden, a special world built just for Pink and I. On Homeworld, Pink was so lonely and sad, but not here. Here, we would play for hours. Every day was so much fun. 
least, that's what I thought. Did something happen? Pink wanted a colony more than anything. One day, her wish came true. Blue and yellow gave Pink her very own planet, Earth. I was so excited. A brand new place to play. So why didn't you go with her? Rebecca Sugar, welcome to Bullseye. It's so nice to have you on the show. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. I have three kids, mm-hmm. and they're all at the beginning of watching a television show age. So I've seen a lot of children's television lately, ah, relatively speaking. And children's TV shows, especially animated shows, tend to be pretty short. They tend to have a lot of action that takes up time. And they tend to have really simple conflicts. And especially these days, the ones for very young kids are, are a little better about this. They're almost always about rescuing someone from peril. Hmm. But uh, almost all of them, like the central conflict is a violent conflict. It's <laughs> <laughs> resolved through violence. Mm-hmm. And for a show about uh, a bunch of characters with semi-magical powers... Space Mm -hmm. powers, somewhere along the line between technological and and magical powers. Uh That's not usually what Steven Universe is about. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that was a choice. Oh, yes, of course. I I think it's exciting for me as a cartoonist to be drawing characters that are experiencing really interesting emotions, really human emotions. Cartoons are so expressive. So from the very beginning... I wanted these characters to have a huge amount of emotional range that you could see on their faces and in their body language. That's just exciting for me to draw. But also, I think more often than not, oh, how do I put this? I think maybe the reason a lot of kids' cartoons have conflicts that are that simple is not because kids are interested in conflicts that simple, but because they're simple enough for adults to understand. Because these are adults <laughs> pitching ideas to other adults for what a children's show should be. And a lot of the time I find it can be hard to pitch to an adult a complicated an idea, a complicated emotional idea. Much harder to pitch it to adult, an adult than to explain it to a kid who, who I think is more personally connected to wondering how their friend is feeling than being in an out-and-out brawl uh, with laser guns. This just happens not nearly as often, I think, in the life of a child. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it depends on how you're raising your kid and what context and that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. yeah, how many lasers are around the house? Right. Yeah. <laughs> what shows did you watch as a kid? Oh my God! Well, how young are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What are the ones that like? Real? I mean, like for me, I have the most vivid memories of watching Pee Wee's Playhouse with my mom every Saturday morning, mm-hmm. and I have other vivid memories of watching Batman and Tiny Toon Adventures after school. Like oh. Those were the ones that I remember watching most vividly after school. Uh-huh. I think when I was young, I was also very lucky. Uh, my dad is a really huge fan of animation. And so he had the whole collection of Looney Tunes on Laserdisc when I was young. And we would... Wait, on Laserdisc? Yeah, we would pour over <laughs> them. Um, and I would watch those with my dad. And I found those fascinating. And he also had... Uh, like Canadian NFB shorts, like independent animation uh, that I would watch when I was young. He had a copy of um, 
You ever see there's a version of Beauty and the Beast that switches from being animated to, to storyboards to rough animation? No. It's like this sort of behind-the-scenes uh, cut of it. That was the only copy we had. So I never really got to think of animation as a magical thing that was real. Like I always understood that it was drawings and that it was a job someone had, even when I was like five, and I really wanted to do it. Uh, that's what I really remember, watching a lot of Looney Tunes. My, uh, my grandparents had a tape of Betty Boop cartoons and Fleischer Superman. I was about to ask that. Like, did you ever watch those? I mean, look, I know you were in a Laserdisc home, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we're, we're not all quite so fancy, Rebecca. Uh-huh. But uh, did you ever watch those cartoons that you bought on a VHS tape for two ninety nine at the drugstore? That were like out of uh, out of copyright, you know, the Sunshine Makers, and then like oh. two Woody Woodpeckers. I not so much as a child, but when I was an adult, I did. We uh, Ian Jones Cordy, uh, who is I ran the show with for many years, but also is my significant other. Uh, he had this copy, this rip of of one of those of the Snow Queen, the version from. Um, the version from the 50s that it's just the quality of it is pretty poor because it's this VHS rip but the movie is so cool and it was hugely influential to Miyazaki uh, one of the Fleischers is working on it I, I, a lot of Steven is influenced by it too uh, there's some really good stuff floating around <laughs> on those on those bootleg tapes did you watch the kind of kids' cartoons that are hyper-gendered. Mm, mm-hmm. Things with, you know, pink princesses and uh, guys in robot suits shooting each other. Well, I didn't I didn't like the, the stuff for girls. Uh, and I re- remember uh, when I was young, understanding that that was incorrect. Uh, I, I watched a show called SWAT Cats, which I knew I was not supposed to be watching, uh, when I was a kid, and I and I found at one point a little diary I had where I confessed, uh, tearfully confessed that I'd been watching SWAT Cats, <laughs> <laughs> but I but I thought it was cool. I wanted to watch something with action in it, and that was a big goal when I was working on Steven. I didn't want anyone to feel alienated the way that I had. I I wanted people to feel like they were supposed to be watching the show, and that the elements of it when there were gendered elements of it, that it was always coming with a big asterisk that says, but you, but it's for you, but this is for you. What does that, what does that mean? What's, what's an example of that asterisk? Uh, oh, gosh. Well, there are many, many princess elements to Stephen as a character. Uh, and even pink as his color, uh, none of that is related in his mind to girl or female as a concept he relates pink to power and and now also to danger but but uh and he's gone through many things that are technically princess tropes that he can't quite figure out how he fits into uh he's not necessarily against it he doesn't have that association with it what's an what's an example of that are people caught up? This is going to be pretty spoilery. Yeah, so spo- spoiler alert, gang. I think we've, we're going to have t- we're going to have two categories of people listening to this: people who are definitely caught up, uh, they've made their voices heard to me, and then people who are pretty chill about spoilers. Right. Um, a lot thematically, a lot of 
the story in Stephen is related to Sleeping Beauty. Uh, he's being raised in his, you can't see me doing air quotes, cottage, you know, by his sort of three fairies, so to speak. And eventually he's brought back to the palace where he finds out that he's royalty amidst a celebration that just um, makes him confused. And then he goes through this gauntlet of... Uh, having mice make his clothes and being locked in a tower and, th- and throwing a ball. And all of it is just more and more and more uh, difficult for him because that's just not who he is. And a lot of that related to just how much I loved those stories and the, those movies when I was younger, but didn't really understand how I fit inside of them. How did you think about the way that you fit inside of the super gendered world of children's entertainment as a you're a non-binary woman that's how have you heard you describe yourself is that mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so like what did what did it mean to you when when you were a kid or even like a teenager was it just something's wrong about this i would i would find it beautiful and distant i would feel a sort of yearning like oh, oh what a lovely thought what a lovely way to be for someone else. And I would find myself really interested in all the side characters with the weird designs. <laughs> like I want to know what, you know, what that maid is is doing. I want to know what the what the cook is doing. Who is he in love with, you know? <laughs> uh the people running around and getting flustered that uh aren't in the center of the story. That's how I would feel. I I, I wanted to with Stephen also put more of a spotlight on those characters, the the characters in Stephen that are equivalent to that kind of royalty, uh, are not nearly as important as, you know, the butler and the and the <laughs> maid and the 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 characters, the knight, the people who would be side characters are the main characters of my show. Do you remember an early a time early in your career when you got a big feeling from your childhood that you put into story? Yeah, yeah. I think the one that I keep returning to is that when I when I was a kid, I left a stuffed animal in the garden and I didn't find it until I don't know how many months later, maybe it was a year. You know how things feel like a year when you, <laughs> when maybe maybe it was 2 weeks, I don't know. Uh but it must have been a while because when I found it again, it had been lying upside down and the sun had faded its belly. It was a, a black rabbit, and now it had this light gray belly when I turned it over. And it was the first time I ever realized that things could change without me. And and it wasn't that it was worse or better. It was just different, and I wasn't there to see that happen. And I never really forgot it. And I And I also felt bad that I had been so careless. I thought I cared so much about this toy. And I hadn't even realized that it was gone. And I wrote a song about it called Everything Stays for Adventure Time. And then as we were working on the movie, it slowly dawned on me that I was writing about it again, about this this person leaving a toy in the garden. And something about that just really stuck with me. I think it was a turning point as a kid where, where I, I had my first existential crisis, but I think... I also realized that I could, I could make a mistake, a, a bad mistake that would, I could leave something behind in that way. 
I think I realized, is there a point where your child, where you realize that you're childish? That must click at some point. I don't know. It really must have rattled me because I keep talking about it <laughs> in my stories. Do you feel like you have to do a lot of work to access those feelings that you had and those memories, or do you feel like they're particularly present in you? I don't know. I I think more often than not, I tend to write about what I'm going through at the moment and then try to find some way to, to connect that with the past if I can. A lot of the show was an interesting process because it started out with me writing about my childhood with my brother Stephen, my younger brother, and I wanted it to be about the, about this formative time when I was just becoming a teenager and he wasn't quite there yet. He was younger and I was and I was drawing and I was I was becoming this role model and you know I wanted to be a good role model and Stephen and the Gems are all based off some aspect of that. But Stephen was with me on the show. He's our lead background designer. So as the show was becoming more and more difficult and I was buckling a little under a lot of that pressure, he was there for me in real time. And the story ends up reflecting that a lot as the, as the gems start to unravel and Stephen steps up to be there for them. That was very much what was happening at that moment, not necessarily what had happened. Although that also happened when we were that age, there you know, being a teenager was a little tough on me and he was such a this reliable source of positivity and if I was ever having a bad day he'd just throw on a video game that he knew I liked and I could always count on him and it just stayed true the past, the present, the future. What kinds of things about teenagerdom were particularly difficult? Oh gosh, let's see. <laughs> what a question. <laughs> I think... I had a bit of a rough time as a bi teenager because I knew right from the start, I knew what was going on. But when I would try to talk about it, people would people would shut me down pretty quick. And that became very confusing. Um, I got a lot of bad advice that just kept living in me really until my late 20s. Uh, things like, oh, you know. Well, well, mainly like who cares? Mainly like the eye rolls, which I was like, yeah, I guess, it's, yeah, I guess who cares? And and at that point, I I think I internalized. I would stop caring about my own feelings because I was just like, well, who who cares? Like I really absorbed that, which I think was people's way of saying, I don't mind, you know, at the time, but it wasn't particularly helpful. And then people saying, well, you'll figure it out when you end up with someone, which made me pretty confused because I felt like I needed a relationship to tell me who I was. And I think I, I made decisions that would have, I would have made better decisions if I had trusted myself. I learned, I think from that to not trust myself because I thought that this made sense and hearing from everyone around me that it didn't made me pretty unsure of my own ability to make sense of anything. More with Rebecca Sugar after a short break. Stay with us. Still to come, Rebecca will talk about how she deals with feedback from fans who don't always see things the same way she does. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Colette Travel. On their small group explorations tours, you'll go deeper into a destination with an average of 15 
Tuscan travelers. Stay in a Tuscan villa or embark on an African safari. Combined with Colette's industry-leading tour managers, authentic cuisine, and 102 years of guided travel expertise, you can trust that the perfect travel experience is here for you. Visit colette.com NPR or call 855-212-2045. Who dropped the most memorable album or song in 2019? Was it Lil Nas X, Lizzo, Billie Eilish, or maybe someone you've never heard of? I'm Robin Hilton. Join NPR Music as we look back at the defining trends and artists of 2019. Listen on All Songs Considered with new episodes each week. Hey gang, it's Jesse with a quick reminder. We're in the middle of the holiday season, and it's a great time to donate to your local NPR member station. They're the reason you're listening to Bullseye, and we need their journalism now more than ever. Go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye to give, and thanks. I've got a message for you. Hi, it's me, April Wolf, the host of Switchblade Sisters and co-writer of the new horror film Black Christmas. And I'm Katie Walsh, film critic and occasional host of Switchblade Sisters. We're here to announce that for one episode, we will be doing something a little different. Much like Jeff Goldblum and David Cronenberg's The Fly, I will be going through a truly disturbing transformation. April will transform from the interviewer into the interviewee. I will be asking her all about her new film, Black Christmas, her writing process, and ongoing existential dread. But I will also be discussing John Carpenter's perfect masterpiece, Prince of Darkness. You guys seen any movies you like? So tune in to Switchblade Sisters for a one-of-a-kind episode with April Wolf and me, Katie Walsh. See you then. Only the corrupt I listen to now. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Rebecca Sugar, created the Cartoon Network series Steven Universe. The show has been turned into a feature film, which came out earlier this year, and the latest chapter in the Steven Universe series is called Steven Universe Future. It's airing now on Cartoon Network. I think it's pretty unusual that Steven Universe is a story that is about a boy whose, you know, main role models and protectors and family members are all uh, present as women. Mm -hmm. Basically, the gems are this like, they're like a, a... space people, aliens, mm-hmm. who wouldn't be female-gendered in on, on their home planet, but on Earth they present as women. And, well, they're perceived as women. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that those are not mothers. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that feels really unusual and significant to me. Like, it's, there aren't that many stories about that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, like, I hear, like, you're an older sister and had a relationship that was not maternal but was protective of your little brother. Mm-hmm. But, like, did you think about anywhere else where that kind of story existed? No, I, I wanted it, I wanted that visual. And I think it says a lot that you never see just an an image or an aspirational story about a young boy looking up to looking up to women. You know, even as someone who I was about to be running a television show. I mean, just how how do you? How do you navigate a world where no no young boy has ever seen an image where the correct thing to do is to just listen to what a woman has said 
mean, that's when you see that zero times. Uh, not that it's zero times, but it's it's rare. And what you what you get a lot of are a boys hanging out with each other and influencing each, influencing each other and and looking up to to men, which. I mean, there are so, so, so many men that I look up to. There's certainly nothing wrong with looking up to men. But I think it would do a lot of good to just put the idea out there that taking direction from a woman is a sign of strength and taking taking direction from a non-binary person who people perceive as a woman is a sign of strength. I mean, that would be great. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That would just be great. I I would like for... And I think that, that as someone who's been leading a team... I feel like we're all so strong together. I don't see why that can't be something that's out in the world. I mean, I think that there have there's been a lot of progress in the time since I was a kid, you know, in the last 30 years or so, in terms of having feminist messages in children's entertainment. But those feminist messages are almost always coming from women to girls Mm. and it feels consequential to me to choose to have a show where the the mentors of different kinds right like these these three characters who are the you know fairy godmothers of uh of steven are all like you know they're all dopey in their own ways in addition to being heroes certainly but like all of all of them are serving as an example to Stephen, who's definitely a boy. Mm-hmm. And I like I thought, you know, in my own childhood as a boy, there was no example of that. Maybe there were some great moms, right? But even those moms were like such a traditional and specific set of mom values, uh-huh. which are like great values. But <laughs> you know, like everybody loves nurturing. But like mm-hmm. that's pretty was generally pretty much right. it. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And gems are not are not inherently nurturing at no. all. That's actually really really tough for them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually I liked the thought of them having to discover that. I mean, Stephen Stephen is the one who is like that. That was very much by design. I wanted to give all of the really incredible maternal traits to Stephen. You know, his healing abilities and his ability to calm situations and bring people together and unite everyone, all of those, all of those things. Because those are wonderful, powerful things, but they don't have to be gendered necessarily. They don't have to be something only a mother can do. What are the special qualities of animation relative to regular filmed stuff or a book or even a comic that you wanted to take advantage of in making Steven Universe? Oh, well, animation, I think, for for a long time, I would get frustrated with the fact that people think of animation as a genre instead of a medium. They think of animation and they think of princess movies and they think of animated television shows being a certain thing and they think of shows that are targeted at boys and shows that are targeted at girls and for good reason because that's the reason that those are the way they are is is because of a lot of things you were talking about earlier because of marketing and because of demographics that are related to advertising and how these things all came to be. And so 
as someone who who also got a chance to grow up on independent films, and you know, I, I thought even from when I was very young, that's not animation doesn't have to be any of these things. It can be so many other things. It can be so many other types of art. But when I got closer to the opportunity to make an animated show for television, I flipped on it completely, and I got very excited about the way that people think of what television animation is supposed to be and what animated movies are supposed to be. And instead of trying to avoid all of this tropey language, I wanted to take it and scramble it and play with it. To make something for Cartoon Network, there are certain expectations for what a show on Cartoon Network is going to be, what it's going to mean, and who it's going to be for. And that became very exciting to me because I could say something not only about what I wanted to do, but about what people expect, what people take for granted, what people consider to be what you are supposed to see when you watch an animated television show. I wanted to shine a big light on that. Because your show represents things in people that are so infrequently represented on television, especially kids' television, it is like immensely important to a lot of people. And... I wonder, I mean, I'm I'm sure, or at least I hope that you're very proud of that, but I wonder how comfortably you wear that knowledge. Ah, well, I mean, I respect fans. I respect being a fan of something so much, and I respect navigating... Uh, being alive as a as a person who is, is queer and gender expansive, I respect that um, immensely and relate to it immensely. And so those two things together, it all makes absolute sense to me. I really try, I speak, I say this in terms of what I'm doing, but also the show is so much a reflection of the of the entirety of the staff. And we're all really writing about ourselves and our loved ones. And a lot of this is very true in our lives. And I have really felt determined to make sure that we are making the art we want to make and that that's not being bent or altered to be what someone might consider more more accessible uh, because what we have to say has not been said because that happen so often, um, or that it's just simply not been allowed to be possible at all. So I don't know if, if I, I'm proud. I'm very proud of what we've been able to accomplish on the show. And I'm very moved at how the show has been received. And also, it's been a big arc for me, because as a bisexual person and a non-binary person, I was, I was closeted up until really very recently. And it's because I have, it's because of the show and people reaching out to me saying, I relate to these characters, I understand what you're talking about, that I have found a community that I didn't have before. So when people tell me that the show has done that, that it helped them uh, come out to their families or find people who understood them for the first time, I mean, I, I respect that so much because it's also true for me. And I understand how much that's meant because I, my life has changed so much by being able to speak about this openly and and being able to understand that anyone might be interested, which for a very long time I just thought, no one wants to hear about this. I had just, I had 
just absorbed that. And I'm just very moved. And when I meet people who who talk about how it affected them specifically, I just, I, I love to get to meet people one-on-one and hear about it because I, I understand. And I didn't really have the tools to talk about a lot of this until, until now. Um, and in part uh, until m- making a bunch of cartoon characters to explain how I felt, which is what I uh, was always definitely going to do because that's the kind of art I like. I only like art if it's coming from an honest place. I just really didn't know that people would understand. And it's really life-changing. So, yes, I'm proud and I'm moved and I'm grateful. I'm just so grateful that people that people saw it like they they saw that in it and they understood even at a time I, we started this so we started this in 2012 when so many of these things we we couldn't actually it took so long to be able to say these things and even before we could people knew and i was finding people who 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 were already excited even about what we were able to do then. I mean, it's there's so much to say about it. But I understand the gravity that it has. It really has it for me, too. And I'll always appreciate everyone to whom the show is meaningful. Uh, I would have appreciated it even if they were just wacky cartoons and they just liked them as cartoons, even that I would have understood the immense gravity of that. That would have been, that would be enough because that's how I already felt about cartoons. But to also get to know that we on the other side of this cartoon, that we're people and that we found each other. Oh my gosh. Uh, I never could have imagined that I would get to feel this way. When you're telling really personal stories, which you are on this show you're telling your personal stories and your colleagues are telling theirs and you know you're creating the show by by weaving these really deep personal meanings together you're also presenting it to people who are different from you have different experiences have different ways of thinking about things have you know whatever and they experience it differently mm-hmm is that hard for you, especially in the context of those people who experience it differently might still be, the, you know, the, a lot of those people are the people who are being profoundly affected by the show. Mm-hmm. So, like, if someone is hurt by it or angered by it, and and it's because they see it differently than you do, because <laughs> they're different from you, right? Uh-huh. Like, are you able to, are you able to be okay about that yeah I think it made me very nervous earlier on I've had to really figure out how to navigate that and I think at this point I really think about it as if I am friends with the audience uh, I think of art as communication as the cartoon as communication like I'm like I'm speaking to someone across the table and I'm trying to get them excited about what I'm excited about as genuinely as possible. I'm not going to try and say the thing I think they want to hear because that's not a good conversation. I'm not going to only talk about myself because that's also not a good conversation. You know, I want the show to feel like a connection that I want to have with my audience. But at a certain point, 
you know, there are there are friends in my life who don't necessarily understand everything about me, and and they're still my friends, right? And I, I could trust someone and know that maybe our closeness ends at a certain point, and and I don't uh, do cartwheels trying to explain myself to that person because that's fine. And then there is a certain point where there are people in my life who are not my friends, and I maybe just don't approach that at all, and maybe don't trust that person because maybe I can't. So I understand that if that's how I'm going to approach a conversation with someone, I've really started to speak, if I'm going to speak from the heart, I'm speaking as if I trust the person that I'm speaking to. And if I can't, I've accepted that that interaction was a failure. (laughs) But it's not going to stop me from speaking to people who I trust and who trust me. I have to have that conversation. And if I'm not, where is it going to be? So I need to just accept that not everyone is having that same conversation with me. Not everyone is on the same page 100% of the time. And it, it can't stop me from having a meaningful discussion to be afraid of a person that I can't trust because our audience is just so massive. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking all this time to come on Bullseye. It was so nice to get to talk to you and get to know you. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for your wonderful work as well. Ah, thanks. Rebecca Sugar, if you haven't checked out Steven Universe before, it's worth getting into. The first four seasons are streaming now on a bunch of different platforms. So is the Steven Universe movie. The Steven Universe The Movie soundtrack is available to buy now in both a standard and deluxe version. The deluxe version has eight bonus tracks. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where... This past week, a Filipino-American youth group held a rally just outside the office only a few hours before we recorded our interview about Imelda Marcos. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows are Jordan Cowling and Melissa Duenas. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use it. And one last thing, we've done a lot of interviews in our show's almost two decades. They're available on our website, MaximumFun.org, which recently got a refresh. It's looking very nice. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 